But we will now hear again from the founder of our great organization, Bill Wilson. Good morning, dear people. Good morning. In the middle of the 19th century, a new means of communication burst upon the world to set in motion a train of events of consequences that even now cannot be reckoned. This was the telegraph. It is a matter of great significance and meaning at least to us that the first words sent over the first wire between Washington and Baltimore were these. And they apparently characterized the inventor. The words were, what hath God wrought? So today, over a retrospect of 30 years, we are watching the building of a new means of communication characterized not by material things, but a new way of speaking the language of the heart, one to another. And this language is a varied language, and we have participated in one of its magnificent variation in this meeting having in it these components of science and of the spirit the only synthesis of any great promise to the world of our time In a sense, I suppose our beginnings are infinite ages old, because there has never been any age in which the impulse to reach for a higher power was absent since man became conscious. Then came Carpenter, and of course, we are in his tradition and teaching. But I would like to pinpoint in terms of people who the personal candle bearers were in the beginning. And I am happy to say, especially so, since we have heard so much good-natured and perhaps not so good-natured derogation of psychiatry, that this man happened to be 
a psychiatrist. And in the view of many of whom I'm one, one of the great figures of our generation, I speak of Carl Jung, one of the three founders of the modern art of depth psychology. He was distinguished from the other founders in that he felt, and I am sure <coughs> knew in his inner heart that man was something more than a modicum of intelligence often ill-used. He was something more than a bundle of instincts, something more than two dollars worth of chemicals. I am sure of this because I know people who have been in contact with him. And one of my chief regrets is that a correspondence that we had begun before his death had not been started years earlier. So vision, if you will, a prominent American businessman who I shall call Roland. Roland was the typical case. He had exhausted every resource that he knew. So he came to Carl Jung, and they spent a year together. And Roland became convinced that now so many of the hidden springs of his strange compulsions and motivations stood revealed that he would drink no more. Leaving the doctor, he was drunk within a month. To him, this was a ghastly experience. This was the end. And he came back to Dr. Carl and said, Carl, you were my court of last resort. Is there anything else? And this very kind old gentleman said, Roland, I thought that you might have been one of those rare cases in which my art might help you to sobriety and better things. But now I know your case is that of such gravity and complication that my art will not unravel it. And the patient took another dive toward deflation at depths, the basis on which our whole recovery rests. He hit bottom. But he persisted, Doctor, is there no other recourse for me? And the dear old gentleman said, Roland, yes, there may be. 
But I must be frank with you. It doesn't happen too often. I speak to you of a conversion experience. Oh, but I, said Roland, I used to be a vestryman in the church. My faith has still not left me. But this hasn't worked. Jung said, I am talking about something that goes beyond faith. I am talking about a transforming experience in which the recipient, as a gift, appears to undergo a motivation change that cannot be accounted for by simple faith by environment, by motivation, by association. These profound changes seem to transcend the sum of all of the ordinary resources that can be brought to bear. Now he said among alcoholics, as among other men of all time, these profoundly transforming experiences have occurred here and there. We cannot tell to whom or when the lightning of providence will flash. So I suggest that you immerse yourself in a religious atmosphere, remembering your personal helplessness. and pray for God's will. So that is a word picture of the colloquy that took place between these two men about 1932. And this great and humble man had placed the first candle which was to illumine the table at which we sup. Roland associated himself with the Oxford groups then in Europe and practiced their principles none of which was new. They had an emphasis. There was the idea of one person talking to the next. You know the rest of it. Our basics were abstracted from it. And unaccountably, Roland seemed to be released. He hadn't been educated out of drinking. He had been released from it. Then he came to America, where he fell under the spell of Dr. Sam Shoemaker, one of the founders of the Oxford Group of that old time. And Sam was then also rector at uh, an Episcopal church 
It stood at 23rd Street, New York. And in the Oxford groups, there were a handful of drunks who had been released. Most of them rather temporarily, but genuine release, nevertheless, by this sort of practice and attitude. And Roland bethought himself of an old school friend of mine. This school friend is the one so affectionately known to us as Ebby. Now I'll pause here, having illustrated to you this stream of influence, beginning with Jung, to the OJ, to Hazard. Now let's come down the, on the other tack and see what happened at the confluence. I'd gone the route, the story's old to you, you've read it. I've told you a thousand times the story of my drinking. So I shall quickly bring myself to that day in 1934, midsummer, when another physician was speaking. Dear old Dr. Silkworth, who certainly will be known in our annals as a medical saint for so long as they shall last. Someone once wrote a grapevine piece about him, and the title was this, The Little Doctor Who Loved Drunk. And from the point of view of the rationalist and the scientific man, the little doctor was a nobody, even crank with odd ideas. He said that sure, there is a lunatic compulsion to drink, certainly True enough. No doubt it may have psychological causes, trauma and use, etc. But he said, I think that there is a moral question. Who's the victim to drink against his will and interest until the destruction is complete? And this is joined to a physical condition that ensures his lunacy and finally his demise. On this hot summer night, this dear little man who up to then had worked in drying out joints, finally found hospital where I go, was perhaps 25,000 drunk, occasional successes here and there. He worked on a kitchen. He boarded in the place. He had a room upstairs. So, as gently as he could, 
He told Lois what the score was. Just like you, speaking to Roland, he said, when Bill came here, he clearly wanted so desperately to stop. Yes, sir. I thought he might be one of the children. But I'm afraid that I must say that it isn't. He's beginning to be deteriorated. I'm afraid if he would remain sane or even live long, that he will have to be submitted. So this is sentence. There's science and the person that Dr. Young and the Dr. Silkworth has upon me and upon all of us. And both these truly great men great human beings had had the courage to say what they believed. Well, meanwhile, my friend Abby had got into such a state that he was about to be committed for lunacy. at a state institution in Vermont where the family is from. Town fathers are weary of that, Abby. For the town fathers, this was it. So they gathered up Abby, hailed him before the judge down at Bankton, and just as he was about to be rooted to the hotel at Battleboro, then appeared Hazard along with a couple of other drunks from the Oxford Grove. And they took Ebby in tow, and they got him sort of indoctrinated on the desirability of honesty, restitution, helping other people, prayer, and so forth. They brought him down to New York. Well, just after leaving the hospital, I had stayed sober for a month or two, out of sheer fear, constant vigil. And then I was in the toils again. So about the time Abby landed in New York and was parked because he was panelist in the Calvary Mission, I'm sitting at the kitchen table Lois is working in that department store. I had a communication, a kind of a language of the heart, with the delicatessen up there, which supplied me with gin on credit. And I sat drinking in the telephone line. And now I knew that this was it. Something told me so, and science had driven in the last fight. I was nailed down to set. So the telephone rang, and here's Eddie. I thought he had gone to the booby head. I said, come on over. We'll talk about the good old days. Ah, what a very significant lie. The good old days. 
The day was unbearable, and there would be no future. So we would talk. He appeared in the doorway. At once I sensed something indefinably different about him. He came in. He sat at this kitchen table in the basement. On it I had a big pitcher full of gin with a little pineapple juice plots in so as to suggest cocktails instead of the straight stuff when Lois got home from the store. So I set out the tumbler for him and started to pour. He said, no thanks. What? No thanks. Well, what's got into you, Abby? Not drinking? Well, he says, I'm not drinking today. Well, now, I said, Tom, uh, let, let's pass it. What, what, what pass? Well, he looked at me and he said, I've got religion. Well, if I'd been deflated by the scientists, this really let me down to the middle of the earth. Because I had had a wonderful scientific education, too. Just like our last teacher, I knew better. Well, one must be polite, so I said to Abby, what brand is it? And he said, I wouldn't exactly call it a brand. And then being very careful to avoid the aggressive evangelism of the Oxford group, he merely told me his story, how he'd met Hazard, come to New York, and he felt unaccountably released from this desire. Well, this relief is a new one. I always talk about the water wagon. So, his story carried great conviction to me. Over this identification, no doubt at great depth, over which simple ideas should be picked in, instead of having to use the court school as a scientist and cop, he was able to go right straight through. He hadn't presented me with a single new idea at all. But I will say that after that conversation, I could never be the same man again. And so, without pressuring me at all, he took his leave, said, I'll see you later. In no waking hour in the days that followed, there could be vision or Abby speaking across that table, leave me. And, of course, I felt trapped. I said, but if I only could go along with it. Honestly, yes, you could make a try. Helping other people dandy, you know, I'm public spirited. Uh, Etc. But the gods there. Okay. And this had a really, although he had played it down, appeared to be the crux of it. So finally, one morning after Lois had gone and I got partly tanked up, I said, I've got to get a clear look at this thing. So I arrived up at Town Hospital, half food. Dr. Silkworth looked at me sadly, and I brandished the bottle and yelled, Doc, this time I got something. And the old man said, I'm afraid you have. You better get upstairs and go to bed. Well, you know the rest of the story. 
I fussed around in New York, was drunk. The experience had a certain paranoid component. I was prone to grandiosity. I think I announced during the first six months I was going to fix all the drunks in the world, which was a long departure from experience. Ego came back. The wise and the damn one got sick. Until I arrived in Akron, and here was dear Dr. Bob. And so I said, I'm going to quit preaching. I'm going to quit demanding that these people have an experience like mine. Indeed, and this was another cornerstone. If I am to stay sober myself, for I had been disconcerted by the failure of a business deal, I need this other alcoholic drunk or sober worse than he could ever need me. So we struck that mutuality. I got off of my pedestal. It clicked. Soon after, there was a third. And in Akron, Bob was this third next. Again in this benign sense. Medicine, religion, and our own experience launched a set of transformation running through 5,000 drunks at Akron in Bob's lifetime and with Ignatia and co-workers in the area to another 10,000 up to the time of her death. Such is our death in medicine. Such is our death in Christian teaching. Such, my friends, is our death to the everlasting and eternal God.